Hello and good evening and welcome to the Irish Times Book Club live podcast with author Rob Doyle, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre here in Parnell Square in Dublin. I'm Laura Slattery and I'm very pleased that the Irish Times Book Club title for the past month has been Rob's This is the Ritual, published by Bloomsbury and Lilliput Press. These are brooding and intense short stories delivered with memorable imagery and a comic touch. This is the Ritual is the follow-up to Rob's debut novel, Here Are the Young Men, which was published in 2014 and was praised for its bravery and uncompromising tone. Here to talk about his new collection and writing life, please welcome Rob Doyle. So Rob, in, in This is the Ritual, you've said that you're, you're giving full expression to what you call your, your obsessions and uh, hallucinations and also your nightmares. Can you tell us about the process of getting these nightmares down on the page? Yeah, I suppose um, the stories of This is the Ritual came out uh, over a space of about three years, um, maybe even slightly more, uh, which began while I was still writing my novel, Here Are the Young Men. And um, felt at times I wanted to take a break from that novel, and then it was finished. And you know, you you, you sometimes you can feel a bit tired with what you're working with, and you want to try something else, and you want to move on to something new. And so I started to write these short stories to really give vent and to give expression to ideas I was having in the meantime, and different voices that I wanted to play around with, and different kind of formal tricks and so on that I wanted to play with. Uh, and I suppose, in a way, it's a very different book from Here Are The Young Men. Uh, obviously, it's short stories and it's set around the world and it's more, the characters are somewhat older. But at the same time, I think what I was talking about there with the nightmares and hallucinations and so on is maybe that a lot of the themes and the underlying obsessions would be quite the same you know there are a lot of stories about uh isolation even madness or the the threat of madness um calamity uh violence uh despair sexual uh misadventure all of this kind of thing so they're quite alienated characters i mean is it a coincidence that many of them are writers or, or are, are writers naturally kind of alienated types that um i you know i there's a song it's just popped into my head by i can't even remember the band called all my heroes are weirdos and maybe that was that way for me when i was uh, reading books for years and years before i ever published anything i suppose all my literary heroes were weirdos were kind of almost exclusively kind of cracked driven obsessives who kind of lived or chose to live on the margins of society or else were having very desperate times in their own lives and some of the this book has a lot of fictional authors and it has a lot of real <coughs> authors in it even take somebody like Friedrich Nietzsche who's referenced quite a lot in the book infinitely fascinating author who lived an infinitely fascinating life and he, but it was a tragic like he was a desperately unhappy man uh and you know i i, I often think about uh norman mailer and gore vidal two authors who i love in their own way uh but they were terrible rivals and they kind of hated each other for years before becoming good friends in later life but 
in a piece that Norman Mailer wrote trying to dismiss Vidal, he said, uh, Gore Vidal lacks the wound, the wound. And I think that's interesting. I think three years ago, I didn't know a single writer in my life. I didn't know any, I didn't, never met a writer really. You know, I didn't have access to that world, publishing world, editors and so on. I was just writing, living in London and stuff. But now I've met a few of them, a, fair, a lot of them, most of them in Ireland anyway, because it's in a small island. And it's, uh, I think it's fair to say that you do find a lot of, you know, a lot of wonderful people and some very kind and nice people, but a lot of them would have, I feel, would have some kind of trauma or some kind of wound, you know, uh, or some kind of drivenness or... Is something the, tormenting them? There's something tormenting them, yeah, that's what it seems to me. You know, maybe you could say that's projecting my own views or reality onto things, but I see that, you know. Not all, no, these are exceptions, you know, but I think, why would you sit there in a room and write, you know? And there's, it's a big old world out there with lots of things to do and money to be made, you know? But then you choose to sit in a room writing, which is a very, to spend your life like that, to me it just seems inherently an interesting thing to do. What makes a person make that decision? And so I found myself writing about writers. Uh, it's not though, that could be terribly dry and self-involved and, you know, myopic and even solipsistic, just, oh, okay, writing about writers. But it's not, it doesn't, it never felt that way to me. It, it feels like writing, not always, but often about writers in This Is The Ritual gave me a way to write more intensely about life and more immediately about life uh, because writers they live life and they write about it too but they suffer it and so on so it's not that you're using it to get away from the blood and guts of real life and all of the traumas and all of that uh, it's just a way to go at it so you're going to read an extract um from one of the stories which is about Nietzsche um so if just invite you to do that now yeah yeah so I'm going to read a, a brief extract from the story on Nietzsche, which is uh, an account of a young man attempting to write a book about Nietzsche, the, the great philosopher who he's uh, enamored of. But as he's desperately trying to write this book, his life is kind of collapsing around his ears. And so he's having all kinds of problems trying to get started on the book. In the meantime, I turned 30. This was an interesting event. At 30, for the first time in my life, I began to dwell compulsively on the reality of my own death. This came as a surprise, not to say a shock. I had believed throughout my teens and 20s that I was the kind of person who thought of death a great deal. In fact, I had prided myself on it. But I hadn't really been thinking of death, I saw now. I'd merely been hypothesizing or play acting. The surprise in genuinely confronting my own mortality was that it had less to do with the future, the coffin I'm bound for, than with the past. Specifically, death was knowing that my twenties, those horny, traumatic years, were gone forever. As a consequence of turning 30 and feeling the shadow of my own death fall on me for the first time, I looked in the mirror and said firmly that there was no more time to waste. Death had my scent now, and I needed to be absolutely ruthless and focused on what I wanted to achieve, which was to write a book about Nietzsche. 
This newfound sense of urgency at first seemed like a valuable asset and a consolation for the loss of my youth. Before long, however, I realized that, that it had the effect of inhibiting me from doing what I wanted, from doing anything at all. The sense of urgency was so strong that it became indistinguishable from the most crippling anxiety. I was unable to get down to anything other than worry about the hurtling of time and the blooming fortunes of my peers, most of whom had not squandered their twenties in a fog of drink, drugs, obsessive reading and pointless travel, as I had. Seized by anxiety, I lost the ability to concentrate or what little of it I'd had to begin with. I was like an empty can, blown all over the place. Though I had spent my life doing little apart from reading, doing little so that I could read, it struck me as a wild presumption and madness to begin writing a book on Nietzsche without having read in their entirety certain other 19th century authors who, although having no direct bearing on Nietzsche, nonetheless constituted the deep background for any serious intellectual endeavor involving a subject from that era. I thought about all the significant 19th century books I still hadn't read, books which were invariably long and demanding, and the sheer scale of the task inhibited me from reading even one of them. Weeks passed and I read nothing. I just watched YouTube videos or loitered on Twitter, where I saw writers five, year young, five years younger than me announce the publication of their new books. A few times, unable to bear the internet any longer, I shut down my laptop, took a deep breath, and actually launched myself into some or other dusty volume. This is it, I would tell myself. The anxiety is clearing. A new phase commences. The crisis has passed. By the time I'd reached page five, though, I would have the niggling sense that I was reading the wrong 19th century author, wasting my time on a dispensable book during a period of great urgency. I shouldn't be reading Fichte, say, but von Hartmann, not Weber, but Spencer. By page 10 or 15, this niggling sense would rise to an intolerable howling in my skull. Fighting off panic, I would put away Fichte and switch to von Hartmann, only to quickly feel that I should really be reading Stendhal or Comte or whoever. By the end of the day, I'd be back on Twitter, all literature abandoned, or else I would call Raoul, my alcoholic friend, to come out and get hammered with me. I thought of Raoul as my alcoholic friend, as a way of denying my own undeniable alcoholism. What's worse, this is not a revelation that came later on. I knew I was doing it even then, and persisted in doing it. My mounting anxiety brought with it a heightened need to drink, because only when I was drinking was I able to forget the hurtling weeks, the pile-up of years, and the fact that I wasn't achieving anything at all. And the less I achieved, the more I drank, and the more I drank, the less I was able to achieve, until my life consisted of waking up late, going on Twitter, opening a bottle of wine, and finally calling Raoul, my alcoholic friend, who eventually stopped taking my calls. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thanks. self-destructiveness, I suppose, with, with, that comes with feeling inhibited to the point where the characters feel like they can't achieve anything, or at least they can't, their achievements don't measure up to other heroes that they yeah. have. Um, that's something you would return to uh, in a few, a few of the stories as well. There's another um, uh, aspiring writer who um, has hero worship for, for Martin Amos oh, yeah. and realizes he, 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 he'll never be as good as Amos, therefore he, he, he sort of, it stops him from writing anything yeah. altogether. Yeah. Uh, so is that something, that's something that interests you? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't quite a conscious thing to write them like that. But you're right. There are a lot of these stories are about uh, failure and not just literary failure. But fa and I just think, just it's more interesting, you know, than than success somehow. Um, so although, although the, the, the writers and all the other characters as well um, are maybe kind of alienated and, and marginalised, there are times they are trying to make connections. It's not that they're totally, uh, you know, uh, said goodbye to the world or anything. Yeah, some of them are. I mean, they're all, you know, they're all, like some. I remember somebody said it was an interviewer or something said, yeah, I, I find it hard to empathise with these characters. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, I don't, you know, obviously I wrote them, so I feel differently. But to me mostly they're people who are uh, suffering and tormented, sometimes in a comical way, sometimes just in a very desperate way. And they're marginalised and they're self-marginalised or alienated, but most of them are more or less desperately looking to make some kind of a connection, some kind of human link. They're just failing badly because they're going about it totally the wrong way or something like that. So um, one of the stories um, I wanted to ask you about is a Paris story and we have two writers only identified as X and K and the sort of uh, a new word to me recently is negging where somebody, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you use it but one of your reviewers Reviews, did, yeah, yeah. Um, where somebody says something that undermines the conf confidence of another. In this case yeah. uh, he posts uh, an anonymous review yeah. um, totally uh, demolishing uh, the book of his, his, his published girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> well, she at the time she's not his girlfriend, and then she becomes. Yeah. His oh yes. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. she's so vulnerable that yeah, she yeah. must seek comfort, yeah, yeah. and he has to keep this a secret. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is. I mean, that's that's this is something that 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 that's quite an interesting, I suppose, uh, example of, of of envy just driving people into making the worst kind of mistakes and self sabotage as well as sabotaging of somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, like failure, envy is just a very uh, interesting emotion or condition for me and potentially a profoundly destructive one, like in that story, although it goes in a very different, because they get married, you know. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, he writes this book review, they're living in Paris as these kind of young, self-romanticizing expats and he writes this book review out of sheer envy and sheer resentment of his friend's success and then by it by a strange convolution of events, they become a couple and then they get married. Uh, but there's always this kind of dark genesis to their relationship, even though she's not aware of it. And it does have ultimately far-reaching destructive consequences. And yeah, there's nothing to say there, really only that envy is an interesting thing, like failure. And um, and maybe envy doesn't get as much uh, spotlight as other, you know, like you'd read a lot of novels or see a lot of films about jealousy. Mm. Uh, it, maybe it's a more glamorous emotion or something, but envy is a very, it can be f satanic in its ferocity. Um, and so it's in, it was just interesting to go into it. And literary envy is just one expression of it, but it's in all walks of life, as, as we all know. Um, was there a kind of a sense of catharsis when you were writing these stories? There's always, yeah, nearly every, not everything, but nearly everything I write has a sense of catharsis to it. Uh, you know, the stuff I write, particularly, let's say, well, the two books I've written, they're full of a kind of uh, the force and an energy and maybe they can be uh, violent and emotionally violent. Uh, and there is a real catharsis, you know. I, I really, I hate the idea of uh, art and literature as therapy and self-help and, you know, 
therapeutic culture thing. Yeah, you do it to, uh, come, you know, to to make yourself better or something like that. I find it very banal. But at the same time, one of the effects of creating art sometimes or creating literature, or what, you know, writing books. You know, let's not give it too pompous a title, but is that uh, you do kind of. Uh, Draw, it's a purgative kind of the, some of the toxic demonic things become more visible and then you do feel a kind of weight off your shoulders because you've given them form spoken the name of them or something so you were telling me before that you feel that even you know before publication just when you're showing things to to your early readers yeah oh yeah yeah that's yeah. right so when when i wrote i think uh, here at a young man uh it was really it really was a novel that kind of had to be written uh that for re you know, even if I wasn't perfectly clear of it, but very soon after it became clear to me that because it's a novel that's very, very, you know, it's funny and it's full of energy, but it is fairly bleak, fairly uh, distressing, let's say. Uh, and it was to write even. Um, but it was getting that stuff that had really just been obsessing me for years, you know, uh, and that I just needed to, to somehow get the grips with or to give form to. Uh, and I feel that if you do, it's that thing that if you do have a book like that in particular, that's very much, uh, that needs to, needs to get out. I think it can kind of curdle inside you. And it, I can imagine if that never got out, it could read, lead to a real twisted bitterness and a, like a, a messed up inner state because you would want, you know, it's kind of like you want the world to recognize that something exists, but the whole world acts as if this thing doesn't exist. So eventually you kind of say, it exists because I've just shown you it exists, you know, and then you feel free of that, like, even if the world is really just the few people who read your initial manuscript or something. Uh, so, yeah, that was definitely, it's part of the, the drive to write, I suppose. And um, can you tell us, there's a character called Rob Doyle, <laughs> who yeah. sometimes pops up in the stories of, of This is the Ritual. Yeah. Um, I think he's called a frazzled drifter at one point. <laughs> yeah. um, why, why did you put Rob Doyle <laughs> into yeah. the story, stories Rob Doyle? <laughs> yeah, a few reasons. I mean, one of them, maybe the most, the simplest reason would be just that it's fun. You know, it's fun just to put yourself in there and particularly to have a bit of fun with mocking that, you know, mocking, like slandering that character of yourself. But also other, I just, I, I really like um, kind of more and more, I like fiction that is, uh, you know, the, the French have this for years, they've had this kind of trendy phrase, which is not trendy, they're jaded with the phrase autofiction, which is you know, it's something that's been done for years, but they've now put a name on it, which is kind of fiction, which is very much based almost explicitly on autobiographical material, but it's not just autobiography, it is fiction. And as far as I'm concerned, personally, a lot of my absolute favorite books of recent years, and maybe even of the last many dec decades and have been in that kind of vein, it just interests me. I just think the less artifice, the less kind of bullshit there is between the reader and the intense raw material that the author wants to express, the better. And often things like distancing mechanisms and plots and elaborate artificial worlds can create some of that distance. 
And I think, well, why not cut it down? Why not raise the, raise the stakes up the ante a bit? And I feel one of the ways to do that is by saying, look, let's, let's, let's stop kidding ourselves here. You know, I could change all the names, but, but actually, you know, it all comes down to my own subjectivity and my own experiences in the world. So you can kind of point towards that by putting yourself in as a character. Uh, you know, and uh, the, also the other thing was I wrote uh, Here at a Young Man, which is very much a classical f fiction. It's a novel, almost a, it's a linear novel. You know, it's, it's, you know, it tells a story and it's got characters and they go out and they do this and they do that. But nearly every, because of the content and maybe the sensational or the shocking or provocative content, nearly every interview I did had the interviewer saying to me, well, uh, so which character are you, you know? Or uh, you know, how much of it is autobiographical? And I'd be saying, oh, this is fiction. You know, I created this whole fictional world, so you wouldn't ask me this question. So look, and they would say, oh, yeah, but which character are you? Are you that one? Can you say, well, I'm 20% Matthew you and 10%? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I ended Barney. up saying things like that. But then eventually you kind of think, oh, well, you're going to be hanged either way, so why not just say, yeah, okay, you know, throw yourself in there into the mix just to... just." Why not? Because they're going to assume it anyway, you know, and maybe they're right to assume it because, you know, the whole fiction is ultimately based in the, and I think having a, breaking down that barrier is a way to admit that, look, at the end of the day, everything is the work of the author's mind and the author's, let's not pretend it's a, it's a self, it's a world that exists outside of the author, you know. And yeah, I just think it leads to more intensity in the reading experience. That's my experience. Now, I know you're not totally fond of the word um, experimental, but um, I wanted to ask you about outposts. Oh, yeah. This is sort of where it's kind of fragments of stories yeah. um, linked together. And um, in the acknowledgements, uh, you've listed some of the influences there, and they come from everything such as dreams to phrases overheard on radio to James Joyce to graffiti and uh, and an abandoned novel set in Bangkok, which oh, intrigues yeah. me. I don't know if that's one of yours. <laughs> one of mine, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, tell me about the process of putting together outposts. Yeah, now that one is, uh, that one is quite different because, as you say, it's... Uh, it's quite fragmentary, but that came from, it was a couple of years ago, for the first time I moved down to Rosslair Harbour in Wexford, and I was, uh, I had way too much time on my own, put it that way, you know, you go down and you think, oh, I'll just be totally solitary and I'll just write and it'll be great, I'll get so much writing done, but actually, you're just in your own for eight or nine months in a house and you kind of, there's not much coming in, you know? Uh, and it wasn't, I wasn't writing that much anyway, but uh, I was also very bored with the kind of narratives and the stories and the plots and all of that. Uh, so I was looking for another way to write. And so I found myself like one night, you know, I had a few drinks or something and I was, I had all the books around and I was just kind of, looking one and I thought oh, that's an interesting phrase randomly so I wrote that and then I grabbed a few more and I started just kind of messing around with this what happens if I find phrases that already exist out in the world and combine them together it's a classic surrealistic technique I suppose getting the jump on your own unconscious mind by not approaching it in the kind of linear in the rational logical linear way but coming at it through surprise and through juxtaposition and that kind of thing 
Uh, and so I was thinking, wow, this is kind of good. And then what if I write my own little thoughts here? And what if I look at this story I was trying to write, but I got bored with it, and I put in a few bits. And then so you create these little scenes. And by the end of it, I had this kind of collage of these fragments that each one to me, I felt had a kind of intensity. They were just snapshots into this hallucinatory world of people in very in interesting situations but not quite, you know, quite unhinged in some ways. And I, I just felt it had an intensity that I found uh, mysterious. And I thought that was a wonderful thing. I think if you created something that you don't even really know what it means, that's a very positive thing. Because what, what does that mean? I don't know, but you wrote it. Yeah, I know, but I don't, I don't know. You know. I think it means that you're getting into the kind of the deeper, um, the, the, the deeper sources of the unconscious and all the energy that goes with that. Not, not to make it all sound mystical, I don't mean it like that, but... Well, speaking of the surreal and the hallucinatory, um, one of your stories, which has um, been published on irishtimes.com, and I don't think we've ever had anything <laughs> like this on irishtimes.com yeah. before, but it's a short story with the title Anus Black Sun. Yes. And this is actually uh, kind of... It's about a man transfixed by, transfixed by the strange beauty of an anus he sees in an online video yeah. he finds on a porn site. Yeah. And I, I love the idea... Uh, <laughs> I love the final image of... The anus is a, the ghost ship. The video is the ghost <laughs> ship on the, in the internet. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a, there, there is a kind of a there's a comical thread through that. Would that be fair to yeah, say? Yeah, there is. I would say uh, it's the greatest achievement of my life to have published a short story on the Irish Times website called Anus Black Sun. You know. And I do recommend you look it up because <laughs> it'll you know it'll do wonders for our traffic. Yeah, I think there's a kind of inner inner adolescent inner teenager which is kind of <laughs> giggling, <laughs> cackling malevolently at, at all of that, um, which is a, yeah, it's probably probably speaks of my a lot of my main motivations to write. Sadly, <laughs> to cackle you know. malevolently, yeah, like the graffiti, you know, graffiti, like writing graffiti and running away. <laughs> You know, uh, but uh, no, this it's comical, but it's also you know like I never I, I can't think really of a really great writer who se who separates the serious from the comical, and you know I don't think there's really very much in that story at all, which isn't or in that book at all, which isn't uh, which is not comical or which is not serious either you know yeah. and so that story it's also a story about a kind of missed a spiritual epiphany the guy is you know he's off his head on drugs and he's watching this very bizarre pornographic film and it becomes a kind of transcendental moment and he has this thing uh, he kind of really goes to some kind of altered state on it um but yeah it's, it's also fun you know I, I i laugh at my own stuff and then it's always a relief or a bonus when I hear other people saying, oh, I found that funny because, you know, uh, like even some of the reviews, you know, most of the reviews have kind of mentioned that they found it comical or, you know, sometimes very much so, where then sometimes they, you get another kind of reviewer more or less exclusively focusing on how bleak and hopeless and shocking and dark it is. And, you know, all that stuff is in there and this the... But people make jokes at the bleakest of times, don't they? Yeah, they do. And also, you look, you know, uh, you look at someone like Beckett, uh, just because I've been re recently going over some of his classic stuff, and it's pretty much funny, not just in part, all the way through, you know, his, uh, his, his prose fiction. He's, kind of, he's, he's constantly taking the piss. He's constantly having a laugh. But that's not to say that he's not 
going right up to his elbows and up to his knees in debt and in f collapse and in u extreme human the situation of being you know vomited into the world as the, the Sart called it you know being a consciousness in the world it's a very serious business but it's a very comical business too you know um, can I ask you a little bit about what you're working on now? Have you started another project? Y yeah, I have. Um, I have. I'm just mostly out of superstition and that kind of neurosis. I'm a little bit wary to say too much about it, but all I, I, I will say that I, I'm, uh, I definitely have a project in mind that I feel really excited about at the moment, and uh, and it's very different. Um, Touch wood, you know, I hope it becomes what I more or less envision it to be, but it will be very different. So the first book here at the Young Man, of course, was this novel, you know, and then it's short stories. Uh, but I've just, I'm more and more I have the kind of conviction that the really exciting, interesting stuff these days in contemporary literature is not really happening in straight fiction, you know, in the straight novel and straight short stories. It's happening in this kind of liminal state between... Um, between other forms and other, uh, and like I say, stuff... Between that, memoir and fiction? Be between memoir and fiction, between autobiography and fiction, between non-fiction and fiction, you know? Or also some of, the, some of the most exciting stuff is just happening in non-fiction, full stop. But I, for me, a lot of the stuff that's on the edge between these, like, uh, there are, you know, people like... I won't even get into the names, but there's a... And it's just, as a writer, for the... Even a lot of the stuff in this book is kind of pushing in that direction, as we talked about earlier. But the thing I have in the thing I'm working on now is maybe more on the non-fiction side of that. Uh, yeah. Is there any one thing that would make your your writing life easier, or is money? Money. <laughs> Give me the money. <laughs> well, is writing meant to be hard? I suppose. Is, is it hard? Is 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 it supposed to be hard? If that's people, somebody says, you know, if it's if you're not if you don't find it hard, then you're not really a writer. Yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's a good good way to look at it. Who was it who said something like that? Okay, yeah, a writer right. is somebody who's uh, for, who for finds who, writing yeah, harder, writing harder than, than, than anyone people. else. Yeah, good. It's true. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's honestly, every time I sit down and I'm writing on something, it's a constant uh, confrontation with self-doubt, relentless, every form of self-doubt and of, you know, this is shit, this is crap, what is this, that's not, that's not, that's not a sentence, that's not a paragraph, you know, this crap, where am I going, I don't know what this is, what am I doing, and that you know, hasn't necessarily gone away, yeah, that's kind of constant, uh, and limbo a feeling of being adrift in limbo you know that's there's all these things you're you know which is not to say you don't feel kind of confident in it underneath and that it doesn't then resolve into something but there's so much anxiety in that uh, and i don't really see how that's going to go away maybe other people have slightly different takes on it and different approaches to it but i i would have i would have a strong suspicion that most writers feel that way maybe Maybe the good ones, maybe the interesting ones. I would say most of them do, you know. I would say if someone didn't have that, they're just churning the stuff out with ease, and then it, it, I would be skeptical about how good it's going to be. Um, it's it's hard work, you know. Um, but but to make it easier, 
money. <laughs> money, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. That, that's not a complaint. You know, I can. I'm doing it at the moment, and I'm comfortably doing it. But I guess that's the only thing, really. There's then there's life, and life is happening anyway, and all its chaos and its unexpected stuff. But as long as you have the ability to sit there and write, you know. But like for years, I wrote with with a job too, and it was a struggle, uh, and at times a really exhausting struggle. And you know, I I teach and I do reviews and stuff to keep the money coming in. So you'll always find a way to do it. But but I do think a certain financial comfort or ease really you can just do more and you can do better. I you know, I I like I'm I'm not that interested in doing anything else. Writing is what I'm into and reading and all that goes with it. And so financial ease allows you to just do that. Because you are, you like writing ab- when you abroad as well, like living abroad as a yeah. kind of a source of inspiration. That's another thing, yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Um, and uh, it, I do find, yeah, I just, I find that very rich, you know. I find, um, like... To I get spend, out of Ireland in particular, is it yeah, just well, escape it's, maybe? It's the, the only place I, I have to get out of, you know. <laughs> it's the only place I'm from. Uh, so, but, but, like, I spent a lot of last year living in Paris for the first time, and it was a kind of which is not to say that it was a blissfully happy period all the way through. It wasn't, but there was a kind of daily intoxication of you wake up and no matter what kind of shit is going on in your life or in your head, you still walk at the door and you're in Paris and kind of your brain is lighting up in all these ways. A lot of it is probably even unconscious, this stuff shifting and stuff happening. And I do find that, personally, I do find that very... Uh, but, you know, then, of course, there's the kind of writer who, you know... Set, sets down in a place at you know a certain a young age and then stays there for the rest of their lives and just writes and writes and writes and it's, it's so that's very much a personal subjective thing and that works for them but for me for now moving around a lot it does does keep me just keep me fed stimulated stimulated <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah well we're going to wrap up the main part of the podcast now um, but thanks very much to everybody in this live audience for coming along Thanks to our sound engineer, JJ Vernon, um, to Amy Heron and everybody in the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. And a very special thanks to Rob Doyle. <laughs>